All right, everybody, we're going to hop right into it. Short intro today. Just need to give you an update quick. We added more Myco Meditation Retreats due to demand. They've all been sold out, so I'm doing another one in December. And then again in April, you can go to ShaneMoss.com or MycoMeditations.com to learn more. But the big show is coming up right now, going back home for the high school reunion on Alaska High School. And uh, and so I'll be doing shows in the La Crosse, Wisconsin, July 27th, and then two shows in Winona that following Wednesday on August 1st. Other big show, Portland, Oregon, coming up with my good friend Dave Waite, going to be featuring for me, and you can come and see me do my brand spanking new headlining set there, actually any of these gigs. Same with Shalan, Washington. In Sarasota, Florida, I think we have Miami coming up too that just hasn't added the details yet. But I just wanted to give you plug some dates quick. I always love seeing you guys out supporting the live shows that I do. And also thanks for the support on Patreon.com slash Shane Moss as well. So with that, enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with professor of psychology and computer science at the University of Minnesota. Paul Schrader joins me today. Paul, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, right before you're heading out of town, where are you going? Luxembourg. Luxembourg. Where's Luxembourg? That's uh, a mystery. <laughs> it's in the, the center of Europe, and it's so tiny that it's, uh, it's not really even on the map. Okay. But yeah, so if you wanted to find it, it's nestled uh, between Germany, France, Switzerland. Hmm. Um, and it's about the size of a city. Work. Because it, it is a city. <laughs> work, pleasure, what, what's going on? It's work, yeah. I've got a, a six-week gig there where I will be a visiting scientist um, on what's called an intermobility grant that uh, that uh, the European Union uses to fund American scientists to go over to Europe to share knowledge, disseminate, blah, huh. blah, blah. Uh, cool. So you, uh, you study a lot of AI and kind of machine learning and its role in also helping understand how, Correct. how the brain works, how our minds work. What, how does computer programming, artificial intelligence, machine learning, how do those things help us understand our own minds? So the interesting aspect of uh, artificial intelligence for cognitive science is that it has always uh, grown up together as the theoretical background for understanding ourselves. There's a long history of trying to understand what it is to be a brain, and we've always used analogies in the most complex machines we have available. So in the 1700s, people thought that the, uh, the brain might be a hydraulic system. <laughs> yeah, and then in the uh, the uh, with the advent of the no computer, and we're no longer we've moved past that since then. No most people have, hydraulic. yeah. I mean, right. So there might be a new hydraulic uh, brain initiative uh, uh, put out by the same people that are flat earthers, but sure. you know, yeah. <laughs> but hopefully, there's nothing serious. Um, but yeah, so uh, beginning in the 1950s with the advent of the computer, the uh, uh, the fields of artificial intelligence and cognitive science really grew up together. Many of the early researchers in artificial intelligence were cognitive science researchers as well, like uh, Herbert Simon, who is a, a, a key figure in the development of uh, models of the uh, the brain, uh, who also was a, a key developer of the um, uh, the symbolic representational approach to artificial intelligence. So, yeah, so if I think the, the best way to put it is, is simply uh, AI provides us with our best guess of how to make a brain work because we, uh, we really don't understand what we can't uh, produce ourselves. Mm. So 
my, my own uh, enterprise, intellectual enterprise, is to uh, try to make something artificial behave like a human. And in the process, you uh, understand the principles of what it is to be a human. Hmm. So what, what are in the future when we look back, what are uh, what do you think are some of the early aspects of of this model that that might uh, have already or might fall by the wayside that might be the hydraulic system of of the future the the kind of big differences between um the way computers are programmed or or at least used to be programmed and and how the brain works yeah so the the brain is an adaptive system to generate behavior our entire body is an adaptive system uh the, uh, I moved to Minnesota and my body adapted by adding all of these uh, um, uh, additional blood flow and took away the capillaries near my skin so I could survive the cold and so on and so forth. Um, so these adaptations are part of what it means to be a biological system. Uh, computers and programs are not adaptive in the same way. Uh, when we talk about machine learning, we're asking a machine to, to learn a, a functional mapping and it's really more like a data analysis. So the the field of machine learning is by uh, by and large a um, uh, an enterprise that has limited generalization, um, but that's that will increase uh, with time. Um, but the 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 analogy that uh, a machine is is doing the same thing that uh, that people are are doing in adapting to its environment. Um, we're we're beginning to see how to make that happen with uh, with machine learning, artificial intelligence. But the majority of the history of artificial intelligence is very different. Uh, the the way we re- represented knowledge in machines was different. The way we uh, trained a machine is different than the way people learn. So people learn by examples. People learn by experience. Um, uh, for the the most part, machines still learn by instruction. Mm. So you have to tell them exactly uh, what what to do. is called supervised learning, uh, and is still the dominant paradigm in uh, for learning. That is changing. Uh, we are trying to make machines look more and more like humans and and learn by human principles. But there's still a, a big gap. Yeah. So how do you uh, how do you do that? So your is that a matter of programming in some more immersive like trial and error how do how do you give a how do you give a computer kind of more freedom of choice to to kind of figure these things out on its own right so freedom of choice is uh is something that's really uh a human concept it's hard to articulate exactly what uh, it means to have freedom of choice, and there's a philosophical debate: Do we even have right. freedom of choice? So, uh, avoiding all of the uh, the, the philosophy, um, a, a machine needs a motivation system. Mm-hmm. So, the motivation system can come uh, slavishly uh, obey your master. So, I teach you. Uh, I provide a teaching signal. You are to be faithful to that teaching signal and do as well as you can in in uh, uh, serving that teaching signal. That's the domain of supervised learning, and that doesn't look much like freedom of choice at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a another indirect uh, learning paradigm within uh, machine learning called reinforcement learning, where you you structure a teaching signal that's more indirect. You uh, you provide your your agent your program with access to uh, to signals that might be important to it. So these signals can be uh, things that are really simple, like earn points in in Mario Brothers, so that it can play a video game, or it can be a little bit more complex, like uh, uh, I want you to do a really good job of predicting your future. So. Uh, a machine that tries to predict its own future is a is a machine that that now has an incentive to get better at understanding the world uh, and embed the structure of the world into the uh, the program in a way that it's it's maximizing its predictive success. Hmm. Those sorts of machines are uh, are called intrinsically motivated, and those are more interesting uh, in in terms of their analogy to humans. So uh, th- this is different than. Like a deep blue, where you're programming in every possible chess move, and it's just kind of brute force 
going through every single possibility and and trying out different things and seeing what works is this a kind of a different yeah. system than that that this uh yeah was it's, it it's a different lear- yeah different learning idea the uh the older ideas in ai uh that were embedded in deep blue are, are what are called uh, knowledge representation systems hmm. and we still use that and we still need that and it's like you you give a machine a, an enormous database and the ability to query that database so if you have a, a huge library of chess moves, then you can look up the appropriate chess move from your huge library. You can also win Jeopardy that way. Mm. Um, but these these systems aren't intelligent in the in the same way as uh, understanding the way the the world works. Um, a machine that can discover physics on its own—that's something way more exciting than a, a machine that that is given an entire library of all possible chess moves. Hmm. Uh, so how how old is this uh, kind of I guess field of intrinsic learning in in computer science? So it's relatively recent origin. There's um, intrinsic motivation within reinforcement learning started in a subfield called developmental robotics about a decade ago. And the there's been a, a revolution within machine learning uh, that's called deep learning. Deep learning is is the uh, uh, the ability to put together much more complex um, uh, structures uh, that are adaptive and flexible neural network structures, uh, together with uh, a, a much much broader library of uh, teaching signals. And uh, what are called objective functions. So by by increasing the flexibility of these systems, uh, engineers are are beginning to um, to get around some of the the limitations that were mostly mathematical. So the 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 math is hard in this domain, and when the engineers have to do all the math themselves, then you t- you limit uh, the ability to scale up the enterprise. So with with increasing computational power and increasing ability to automate certain kinds of uh, computations, there's a, a a new ability to put together complex systems. So and these, and these complex systems can now have uh, much more interesting reward functions, like the like the one I mentioned, where the the machine tries to learn to predict its future. Hmm. It, like what? What do you mean, predict its future? Like what? What aspects about its future? Just so you can uh, allow it to try and predict any aspect of its future. Typically, the uh, you still program into an agent something about what's good for it. So that that part of it is called a reward function. It's shaped by the engineer, uh, and it's it's ultimately telling the uh, the the agent what is it, what is it in the environment that's that's good. Um, when you do that, then predicting what's rewarding will be the uh, the most uh, interesting thing for the agent. But you can design an agent that simply predicts uh, the consequences of its own actions. For instance, for instance. Hmm. So so it's uh, you can design an agent that's playing a video game. And it randomly tries out controls, and then it tries to predict what it's going to see next in terms of the uh, the screen display. Hmm. And by, by doing that, you embed into the system an understanding of the the what's called the dynamics of the uh, the game. You the the system begins to understand how the game works, what it's going to see next, and um, there's some very interesting applications of this idea to, to playing like 3D video games. Once you embed a, uh, a predictive understanding of the game, you can simulate the game. Hmm. And by, uh, in, during the simulation of the game, the, uh, the agent can then teach itself to play. So it, it first learns the environment, and then it simulates the environment and learns to play against opponents uh, using its own simulations. And is this is this? Uh, I mean, maybe I'm I'm probably going to ask a lot of questions that we don't have answers for, perhaps. But is is this similar to what our brains are possibly doing? It seems like we're running simulations in our head. We're drawing, we're drawing on past information and past experiences, and I can sit here and think about what happens after this interview is over. I can picture myself packing up the equipment, driving back to the hotel, maybe getting a nap in before my show tonight, thinking about 
who how many people might be at the show um simulating the the jokes that I might do and how they might be received and maybe trying out a, a new thing and I I often when I say write a new joke I I picture an audience's response to this joke and a, a imagined audience of varying sizes varying levels of inebriation varying levels of interest um and you know maybe i'm in a cafe delivering this joke maybe i'm in a big comedy club or in a theater and i can kind of run these simulations that are often not the most accurate thing in the world but but it's still uh, uh many times in the ballpark as well of of what my future might actually look like is is there simul uh, is there um similarities between um the what what this this new computer learning is doing with say a 3D game and running a simulation and what our human minds might be doing trying to understand and interpret the outcomes of our own behaviors yes the um there's an explicit goal within the AI community to try and replicate some of these human abilities um, the human ability you just talked about, psychologists call it episodic memory. Mm. So we, we have memory of episodes, but we can also simulate uh, new episodes using what we've learned from the past. And we can do that in creative ways. So this, uh, in general, falls into what are called generative models from the machine learning or AI uh, perspective. Generative models are now uh, becoming very, very rich in AI. We're able to synthesize images that are photorealistic with new properties. We can take the style of one kind of a painting and apply it to another. Um, and and the, uh, the richness of simulation is, is growing exponentially. This is a, a problem that we're really beginning to solve uh, in AI. Um, humans have solved it in an extraordinary way. So our, our simulations show up in our, our dreams, um, as we work out things at night, it shows up uh, during the day in imagination. Um, some simulations are backgrounded. We work on a problem without our uh, being aware of it, and then the solution will pop into our head as a moment of insight or discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, uh, there are simulations that we run uh, of uh, practice. And the, the surprising thing is if you practice in your head something like shooting a basketball, you actually do get better at it. I've had dreams of uh, of rock climbing on a on a particular route that I was struggling with, and I actually dreamed the move that I needed to be able to uh, uh, get past this this problem I was having on a particular route before. Um, and and that's just like one conscious example of what I was aware of, let alone the the things that are happening that I'm not conscious of. So our, our ability to simulate seems to be instrumental in our flexibility, our ability to handle new situations, new environments, uh, challenges that we haven't exactly encountered before. Mm-hmm. But we've encountered some things that are similar so that we can construct a possible solution out of the stuff that we know together with some, some uh, principles that are embedded into us as, as part of the world. And then there's another part of us that is what makes us efficient, the things that we do all the time, the things that are, that are subconscious, the things that are inflexible. One of the other things that I've been really interested in my research is this, this um, uh, compromise or trade-off between our flexibility and our efficiency. So the, the, uh, the flexible part of us is always inefficient. And this turns out to be true. Wait, wait can you can you repeat that aspect? Yeah, so the, it's a it's a true trade off. Our our brain is uh, designed to be efficient mm-hmm. in terms of uh, solving tasks, and if you do anything over and over again, you get better at it. The majority of you are getting better at it is actually getting faster at it and making it less conscious, mm-hmm. less uh, less effort, less uh, less thought involved. Uh, AI systems have something similar embedded in them as well. The, the simulation ability, even though it's cool, is very expensive. It takes a lot of computational power to simulate scenarios, and you don't want to do that over and over again if you can embed it in a way that it becomes automatic, automated. Hmm. And uh, uh, the efficiency that we have also means that we go on autopilot. Mm-hmm. So that autopilot phenomena is just our, the efficient part of our brain taking over, uh, making sure that that uh, we don't waste effort 
And this, uh, this trade-off seems to manifest also in mental illness. Certain mental illnesses are really characterized mostly by uh, the uh, inability to come back to flexibility. So you get stuck. Um, hmm. Um, so as, if, you know, every, everyone kind of talks about uh, how how fast computers are evolving and how incredible AI is and the singularity is near. And, uh, and there's, uh, I mean, from a mechanical standpoint, self-driving cars, however many years from now are going to be flying around on roads, uh, you know, a hundred miles an hour, my, grandchildren or whatever will see that you know the cars flying around with all this incredible precision trying to explain to kids like 40 years from now like no we used to drive those things they'll be like well, what and, and we were sometimes intoxicated when we did they'd be like well, you're you're crazy how could you do that um but and that's just from a mechanical point of view but but there's also uh the uh i, I was listening recently to that um that playlist of the the artificial intelligence that made the the composed the classical music you're probably familiar right uh, with that and so this these things are becoming uh, more uh, artificial intelligence intelligence computation is becoming more intelligent um, and more powerful but at the same time it doesn't seem like it's becoming uh, any more um, self-aware necessarily is is this intrinsic learning um a a way in which um uh, artificial intelligence is able to i mean i guess i'm i'm kind of getting into uh harder questions of like what is consciousness um yeah and and those are those are really interesting i mean they're i think it's hard to figure out what consciousness is even for right so one aspect of uh consciousness is that it it centers us it gives us an ego we have a a sense of self because of uh, consciousness and that's been commented on a lot um there's another part of consciousness that uh, is social it helps me to uh, to understand what I would do, and I also simulate what other people would do. And it's uh, um, uh, and it's also the case that a lot of what our brain does is not part of our conscious world. Right. And I could talk a lot about the the, the various things that that our brain does that are quite sophisticated, that are difficult to replicate in AI, that are all done without consciousness, like. Like, like most of seeing, like most of uh, acting. Yeah. Yeah. We do. Um, fortunately we don't have to think about breathing. (laughs) Right. Usually anyway. (laughs) Right. Uh, Unless you're drowning or something. So, so when you're talking about vision, for example, we, we absolutely take it for granted. Just the uh, immense amount of information that, uh, that our brain is sorting through in this perception that it's creating for us. What's the difference between um, me looking out this window right now and, and seeing this park and people walking around and, and uh, being able to identify trees and these vehicles here and, and what, uh, what, at the moment a computer is able to recognize and it's when we, we give it some cameras to look through and interpret the data that it's receiving. Right. So uh, currently computer vision and AI within computer vision is very good at recognizing the, uh, the objects uh, around you. Um, so that's, it's achieved human level performance and object recognition. What that means is that the computer ends up with a, a label for every item out there um, which is just like a number. So imagine you, you're doing paint by numbers and you, you throw out a bunch of numbers in your environment. Each number is just an object. Mm. And now you, you have a scene and you can identify all of the places where uh, ones are, where it's sevens are, 14s are. Those are objects. That's a computer's understanding of the world, though. Mm-hmm. It's just you have those labels. Human understanding is much richer we have uh, we have a semantic understanding 
we have an interpretation. And what it means is that uh, there's this additional level of meaning that is uh, that comes into play when you look at the scene. Um, you have a physical understanding. Some things are on top of other things. So we can begin to, we're just beginning to make computer vision algorithms uh, have the physics kind of understanding. This object is on top of the other object. Mm-hmm. And we can do some of this with uh, with text to uh, image, but the, the text is, again, from the computer uh, standpoint, just a bunch of labels. It's just a bunch of numbers. So the, the on top of as a concept contains a lot more. Is that like object permanence kind of well, stuff? Or? No, it's, it's, if one thing is on top of another, I also know that I can go over, reach it, grab it, and lift it up. Mm. So the fact that I can lift it up is it's, it's my understanding of the actions that are available. Hmm. So uh, psychologists call this affordances. So every object you you identify it in terms of not only the uh, the object but what it affords you. So the the door that you came in on the way in, if we took it off its hinges and laid it flat, it's now a table. So that's and if I asked you, hey, let's let's make a table, and we we're short on tables, you might think of that as a solution. Hmm. Um, a uh, computer vision system would see that as a door. It would assign it a label 23. Yeah, and 23 can't be a 17. Exactly. Right. right. It doesn't know how to, to translate that because it doesn't know what it means yet. Hmm. Um, so building that level of meaning in it, that's, that's the gap right now. There's a lot of uh, really interesting ideas on how to span that gap. But the gap is, is currently uh, the – it's big. Yeah. I, well, I've, I've – uh, I'm sure I've talked about this a, a couple times before on the podcast, but – when we talk about a visual system, I, I sometimes, I, I used to watch, uh, whenever I'd have company over, I would have on, on the TV screen on mute, I would have, uh, nature documentary, planet earth or whatever playing. And then I would also have Pandora, um, playing, uh, playing music. And I noticed that, and people wouldn't know that I was doing that. And I didn't realize people, uh, this would alter people's perception of what they were seeing. So if I was, so if, if people were, uh, if say Jimmy Buffett or some like happy go lucky music was playing, people would see this nature scene, interpret it with this kind of relaxed safety, like, Oh, look, look at these animals just chilling out in the, in, in the, uh, in the forest or whatever. That looks relaxing. But then if there are some kind of, darker more intense like pink floyd song or the nine inch nails or something like that people people might look at the exact same scene and be like oh my i hope they make it out okay and there's probably danger present and so they're using more information than than just the visual system to uh to interpret what is happening in this scene even though the the visual of the scene and the reality of what's happening in the scene hasn't changed at all. That there's these other layers, these other kind of dimensions that our that our minds are using to uh, to build the complete picture of what's happening in um, in our in our perception in our world. Is that is that something that computer learning is is quite a ways from being able to um, kind of uh, process the, the those those many different dimensions those uh, those multiple layers of life where i mean in, in psychology there's all sorts of primes that you can use to get people to change their behavior um and and influence people's uh you you give them more variety and uh, of foods and they're they're hungrier or they'll eat more or something like that even though it's the exact same volume of food is that <laughs> do you understand what i'm trying to ask is i completely understand and I, you're you're exactly right the analogy of uh, of layers and dimensions are very apt it's mm-hmm. that's really what uh what it amounts to so in in terms of objects um the the relationships between objects the um the relationship between an object and what it might mean to you emotionally and so on we can view these as as tags we can view them as layers and i can represent them as graphs in a computer system 
Mm-hmm. And this, uh, this richer representation is increasingly something that is, is not only possible, but we can, in fact, uh, do this in a, in a, a computer system. The, the, the challenges have been the, the um, phenomenal amount of information in just one image, mm-hmm. uh, being able to compress that. If I compress it down and I store it, how do I access it again, uh, again in an in a simple way. And there's certain principles that people uh, have built into us about the way we access information. So I can give you these these ideas like um, uh, try to tell me something about the the last time that you were uh, surrounded by the color blue. And you can use that as a cue to look up memories. And uh, I can give yeah. you something else. I can give you an emotional memory like uh, when was the last happy birthday experience? And then you can go and look up that memory. So we have the ability to look up memories on the basis of a, almost any one of these these tags or dimensions. Mm-hmm. And that's a super important part of the way, the flexibility of, of how we store information, we can recall information. And there's, uh, there's some really interesting experiments now on, on computer science where uh, these, these deep learning ideas have been applied to databases and the idea of automatically learning a uh, a labeling system for storing complex information and looking it up more like people, there's the first few versions of this have been instantiated over the last few years. Hmm. So it's it's starting to get exciting where um, some of these very human-like capabilities, we may be able to replicate them. We will have to teach a, a machine, though, what it means to uh, to see something as dangerous. Yeah, right, right. Right. So, well, I mean, this is, that was kind of going to be uh, my uh, next question was when, early on when thinking about how how the mind works, a lot of people had this idea of uh, logic and rationale that was uh, a lot more sterile than the reality of how our our brains um process data and information where where emotions were almost thought of as this um as this error or or something that was like getting in the way of our of our uh otherwise very accurate processing systems but uh, we we now kind of know that um these emotions evolved as uh, are these kind of evolved mechanisms meant to motivate certain behaviors and guide us in these purposeful directions to uh, in, increase our social status or or help us uh, reproduce or whatever it might be? Our uh, our is artificial intelligence going to have to have? something resembling emotions eventually built into it as a reward uh, as a carrot and stick based system eventually absolutely the 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 most difficult thing right now in ai is what i'd call computational motivation so it's it's trying to think through the principles of what a motivational system would look like for an artificial being Mm-hmm. So there's ethical issues with that, of course, but there's also just um, how, as an engineer, can you design a system that has purpose? Mm-hmm. It's it's really, you have to create a purposeful being. And there's um, there's a whole set of things that humans do automatically. We've always been looking for like the one thing that we're um, uh, meant to do, you know, the, the, the purpose. And it's, it's clear from biology that there's a, a set of purposes. We are we are programmed to reproduce, but if you can't reproduce, then you you uh, make sure you su- at least survive, and you might actually prefer social status to uh, to reproduction, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. We 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 truly have this range of purposes, and they come out implicitly, and some part of our brain is able to uh, to uh, uh, identify those purposes, but we're not that good at it because we're not that good at understanding ourselves. It's right. very difficult to build something intelligent into machines. Right. right. We need to figure ourselves out first before we can program something to behave in the, in the way that that we're processing things. But hard to do when we don't have any idea how we're processing. And if, if we want AI to live with us, we may not want to make it exactly like us. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Well, 
that's um my my brother does uh is a computer programmer and and i mean this is this is just this is an intimidating conversation for for me to have uh, just because uh, i mean i i definitely don't uh i i don't have any kind of a background or or great understanding of of uh computer programming but um but he it, he's he's kind of told me how how uh you know you program something to do something and it does something different than what you expected it to do but it was doing what it was programmed to do it's just that it's just that you didn't foresee what that what that meant uh and is this is this a, a potential concern with artificial intelligence in the future you you program in you go uh we're going to give this uh this artificial intelligence system the the processing power and the quote unquote freedom to be the best spam filter it can be and then uh, eventually it it gets so good it realizes that humans are the main source of of spam and then it's like well if it gets rid of humans then it will get rid of all all spam and that's when the it builds the skynet and the terminator robots and everything that i'm i'm sure has uh come up from your your students and everything must must ask you from time to time when the when the robot apocalypse is is coming to destroy us all <laughs> Yeah, I think it's easy to imagine certain kinds of uh, motivation systems that could go wrong. Yeah. Um, uh, the, even the one that I was talking about before, where a computer system can predict its future, you can um, you can modify that a little bit with a uh, a reward function that's called empowerment. And in empowerment, the the agent's goal is to to maximize uh, its control over its environment. Hmm. So this is a this is a, a potentially a great thing for uh, an agent um, because it, it puts it in the spot where it learns all of the things that it can do automatically. It's mm-hmm. just figuring out uh, the 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 limits of its abilities. This seems like a self actualized agent. It might be like this this wonderful benign being, but you know uh, there's side effects to controlling your environment, right? We're discovering that in ourselves. As we've controlled more and more of our environment, we're kind of destroying it in the process. Right. So we, it, it would be very easy to design machines that would have some of the, the same side effects right. that humans have. Yeah, well, and, and humans haven't, uh, haven't kind of necessarily been uh, designed by evolution to process these like what happens when you uh, bomb you know a hundred thousand people like to, to even to even process a hundred thousand people dying or something like that is something that we can't really wrap our heads around in the same way that we can very very much visualize uh one person being stabbed or something like that is very salient for us and and uh it, also, we didn't live in an environment where we had to worry about landfills being over overrun or global warming or these kind of bigger problems that we simply haven't adapted to understand. So artificial intelligence could it could potentially be programmed in the same way where there's there's these um, uh, these side effects or unwanted effects that that it just was not programmed to um uh, to understand or foresee is that kind of what you're saying yeah i I think it's it's relatively easy to design a system that will um especially an artificial motivation system that would have unintended side effects Mm. so it's it the 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 biggest problem will be when uh we give uh, the agent the ability to adapt its own actions so it, this is i mean this is a, a weird commentary on people but what's so amazing about people is that we don't just have our hands we have our tools and then we use our tools to build tools mm-hmm. and when we're talking about ai we're, we're really talking about our tool ai building tools that will build tools that will build tools right right so we don't we, we can't really even comprehend what that fourth tool down the line would even look like would or even what it like. would be for yeah right. 
Hmm. So the 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 interesting thing, the the most dangerous places where uh, uh, AI could um, uh, reshape our world is um, uh, most of our world is now increasingly run by software. But in addition to software, the AI is now becoming better and better at writing software that's better than the software that we write. Hmm. So you can throw your software through an optimization algorithm uh, that is is a kind of AI, and the AI is is then writing uh, uh, code that's better than what a uh, an engineer might think to write because it can search over a much larger space of possible solutions, hmm. ones that uh, a human wouldn't necessarily think <laughs> of. Um, as as uh, we use AI to write uh, to automate the process of writing code then more and more of our world will be run by code that's not written by humans. And mm. that's that's the the place where really unintended side effects can begin to happen. Hmm. Um I I don't mean to take too much of a detour here but are are you into sci-fi? Have you seen uh Westworld? I'm sure at least yeah, your yeah, students. Yeah, Westworld have... has been amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so incredible. Yeah, I've only seen season 1. I haven't started season 2 yet. Yeah, I just started it, but uh but it, it's what an what an incredible premise and to have uh, without spoiling too much to have AI that might be kind of quote unquote waking up, but is it actually programmed to be waking up and it's thinking it's gaining its own agency, but maybe it was programmed to think it's gaining its own agency. Fascinating. Do you, do you, did you have any, uh, were you, was there any, um, sci-fi or anything growing up that, that, uh, that, influenced your your interest in any of this field or how did how did you get into uh, where did this interest come from why why did you start pursuing this in the first place yeah i was i was definitely an asimov fan uh but then there the really uh, critical moments of my life where uh i i got my my mom to back me to to get a, a personal computer when they they first came out i was 11 and i promised to uh to learn how to program and this was a major expense for my family. We didn't have that much money. Uh, she got my my dad on board, and I taught myself to program when I was uh, eleven. So that wow. was that became. A, How old a are you now? Uh, Forty nine. Forty nine. Wow, you look younger than that. Um, so congrats on that. But wow, so you were. This was this was one of the very very early personal computers then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Huh. Yeah, nineteen eighty. So you've been at this for a long time. Yeah. Wow, that's a, yeah. So I programmed uh, a very early graphical video game. It looked a lot like uh, Space Invaders when huh. I was twelve, uh, and then and then I ran into uh, a book by uh, Douglas Hofstadter called uh, Gerda Lesher Bach: uh, An Internal Golden Thread when I was in high school, and that that just sucked me into AI. Um, so so what is your journey of? been like in your interpretation of this world have you been have you been blown away by how how much computers and everything have advanced did you did you feel like you saw a lot of this happening before um before everyone else did you uh did you have grander expectations than you know were you thinking uh that that the singularity would have happened years ago or We'd all have hoverboards or whatever. How has your expectations since that time matched reality over the course of 30-some years or whatever, 40 years? So, yeah, I've, I've seen most of the major advances in AI just during my brief career. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was studying first-generation AI when I was in, in high school and college. And then in graduate school, there's the the, the second generation uh, AI. There's a, a the um, the first generation AI was symbolic, uh, focused on knowledge representation. Uh, second generation was the first round of neural networks. The third generation was uh, probabilistic modeling, dealing with uncertainty, and then the fourth generation is now deep learning. So I've seen each one of these, and most of the time I've been fairly pessimistic about what will happen. And the the thing that's been very exciting recently is the ability for uh, computer systems to begin to handle the the real world complexity of data. 
to really be able to handle something like uh, um, driving a car for mm. for real. Um, I, I thought at this moment in time that we would be replicating insect systems. And I think we can probably get to the level of replicating a, a mammalian nervous system within the next uh, 10 years. Mm. So, and then it, it won't, it's not as hard to scale things up uh, after that as you, you might think. We mm. can do this in faster than evolutionary time. Wow. So, so what, uh, what, what niches, what, um, what roles, what, what occupations are kind of, uh, uh secure or kind of, uh, safely in the domain of, of humanity for the next, uh, decade or two? What, what, <laughs> what, so, what jobs are going to be safe? Cause now there, there's robots performing elaborate surgeries and, and these uh, forming these incredibly, precise tools uh, the, even in terms of diagnostic uh different different cancers and that sort of the uh, our, our toilets might be um giving us uh, kinds of physicals and stuff like that and taking stool samples and everything else later on this might be putting doctors which are some of the highest educated <laughs> uh people in in the in the human race might be putting uh, some of them out of jobs but uh are there are there fields out there that are are going to be secure for a while like we won't we won't have artificial intelligence that will be able to sort out this x human um problem human occupation or role that that is happening today so I'm going to say something that's, uh, I think, a little bit weird, and that's uh, a lot of the high-powered jobs today are high-powered because they require people to think precisely in complex domains. Mm -hmm. And any place where there's a lot of precision, the rules are fairly set, we can automate that. Mm -hmm. The complexity actually is not the issue. It's it, The issue is whether or not it's uh, it's fuzzy, so these domains where, where people are still probably going to end up being on top are, are the places where the, the domain is fuzzier. Mm. It's harder to figure things out at all. Um, so stand-up comedians. It's, uh, the world's just going to be stand-up comedians in 20 years. That's the, that's the, we're just going to take turns telling each other jokes, basically. And, and that's, it's, it's not a bad life. That's, yeah. But yeah, I mean, so lawyers may actually uh, go out of business. Right. Uh, accountants, um, we won't need them. Uh, we'll have good investment agents. Um, a lot of the things that, that uh, people pay uh, humans a lot of money for now... They're, those jobs are are easier to automate than you think, hmm. <laughs> but but yeah, but some some of the other jobs that you wouldn't think, um, you know. So barista is is you don't want a non human barista, right? I yeah, don't. there's coffee machines. People don't go to coffee machines; they go to the barista, right? But it's it's not it's not because that's a it's you know an intrinsically difficult job. It's just that the the flexibility that you need there's there's a, a level of human interaction. There's a level of uh, of problem solving that goes into uh, social interactions that uh, we we won't want to have an AI system try to take away from us. Hmm. So so hopefully hopefully we we also come to appreciate the variety of human capital better than we have now mm -hmm. in this the, the current economic system we we really do uh, try to put a price tag on people based on uh, some estimate of their worth right hmm. and ai will change our our measuring rod of worth by uh by being able to automate things that we thought of as being super special mm -hmm. yeah i mean this is a I I often tell people like this is isn't this great news isn't this what we're working toward you, you know you you have a task that I mean I've I've used to do factory work you have some mindless repetitive task and now you have a robot that can do that same task so you don't a human doesn't have to crank out this widget or whatever it might, I mean th this is good news other than now that person's out of a job and needs to find something else, so we need to rethink, like you said, in uh, um, terms of human capital. But, but this seems like uh, this seems like fantastic news to have something that can 
do a better uh, diagnosis than than uh, than a doctor can um, t- can guess at because it is able to take all of medical information and publications and have it stored in one <laughs> in one place that it's able to draw from where n- no human mind can possibly process and remember every single possible little illness and detail of every muscle and that sort of thing. is it is this uh, is this good news are you are you positive about uh, about these or or do you do you worry about uh the advancement of ai what's your as as someone in this field what's kind of your stance little of both I, I'm definitely worried. I mean, the the prospect of better tools. I mean, currently AI could be a, a brain prosthesis. Yeah, it could make us smarter. Uh, Google searches make us smarter in a way. Wikipedia at our fingertips makes us smarter in a way. Mm-hmm. But it can also make us dumber. So it can um, get us to store less information, um, rely on ourselves less, so on and so forth. Um, a huge part of uh, what's going to happen really depends on uh, whether we intelligently incorporate AI as a tool that uh, betters us. Mm. But we have to think about it. It's not a given that people, uh, people's natural laziness and the, um, the cognitive cost of doing business won't um, make these tools something that uh, decreases our abilities, dumbs us down. Mm. And I mean, as as people try to understand how you reward uh, computers to perform tasks better, people there's also people in say marketing trying to understand the human mind and how uh, what triggers and rewards and what uh, what fears we have that can be tapped into to get us to um, it, it, to to prime and behave in, in certain ways, to vote in certain ways, to buy and consume in certain ways. What what happens when artificial intelligence gets gets so good that it can um, go on to our Facebook feed and whatever and scan through every page that we've ever liked and and understand us perhaps better than we understand ourselves and and know what ads to uh, to run for us and and how to keep us. Uh, hooked on, uh, you know, into the computer for as long as uh, as long as possible, and to maintain our attention through either um, more and more hilarious cat videos or or scary and scarier, you know, uh, ways of altering the news or whatever it might be. Is that? Uh, <laughs> do you think that we might? Um, uh, artificial intelligence might be in in terms of kind of dumbing us down do you think that things like internet com- addiction computer addiction phone addiction is going to be a a much worsening problem uh, over the next uh decade or so or is this going to be something that you know we're we're still pretty new to smartphones maybe we'll maybe uh, you know we're we're going to get used to it we're just kind of learning them and we'll we'll get used to turning them off and giving ourselves some some time away from phones or will they just be able to kind of hack into our minds eventually so we we are less and less able to put them down i I think we may have generations yeah this is a complicated subject let me (laughs) let me back up sure um so the 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 place i'd like to start with this is uh what you're describing is that technology is almost like a virus yeah. And it can act very similar to a, a virus. We don't really have a cognitive uh, immune system that could fight off the fact that we have a, uh, a, a new environment around us, this technological environment that, uh, that we're creating. But it's also um, – it's there's a, an incentive structure on the part of marketers and so on to adapt this in a way that it hijacks our mind. Mm-hmm. So this process of hijacking our mind is like a virus hijacking your body, using your own your body's uh, um, 
uh, cell system to reproduce itself, to uh, uh, propagate itself, and so on. We propagate uh, information on Facebook exactly the same way. We just uh, take in the fake news and spit it back out, and so on, mm-hmm. uh, and spread these uh, these these things so that uh, we, uh, you know, it's it's very difficult for me to understand how anyone can believe the Earth is flat. Right. So so this is. <laughs> To me, this is like a mental illness, a widespread right. mental illness that, that is being spread by uh, technology. Um, do we have within us the ability to recognize that that's happening and fight against it? I, I think the answer is yeah. Um, but the we've created a digital virus. We're going to have to create a digital immune system. Mm. So it's, it's mm. not without thought that uh, we'll be able to fight this off. <laughs> I, I don't think we'll just automatically adapt. There'll be um, there'll be a new generation of people that grow up in this environment, and in a uh, environment they will adopt different ways of doing things. Um, one generation, another generation, they won't behave the same way in this uh, digital environment. The age at which, at which you're exposed to it will matter, but I, I'm not hopeful that without conscious effort there won't be a cost to creating this environment. So I, I do think that we need to begin thinking now about. Uh, what a, a digital immune system will look like. Yeah. Uh, if for no other reason, so I can use it to get people hooked on my podcast to to listen more uncontrollably. Uh, that's how I'm going to, to use it to become master of the universe. Um, well, I, I need to get you out of here. You've been so generous with your time. This is a mind-blowing conversation. Thank you very much for, for joining me today and for your time and for rescheduling as my flight got delayed yesterday and everything else. Uh, uh, Paul, I have my guests each week named a nonprofit of their choice just a nice positive little thing we like to do at the end uh, did you have something in mind yeah the epilepsy foundation i have a, a older brother who suffers from epilepsy and they're they do an amazing job of uh, helping people who are uh, at a, a very difficult marginal place in society hmm Fantastic. And people can uh, find links for that on the herewearepodcast.com website as well. And uh, and you can learn more about Paul's work on there as well. And uh, well, thank you, Paul, for joining me. This is a terrific conversation. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. Thank you. Next week on the show, talking with Kathleen Little in Cleveland about exercise science. I've been trying to get into a little bit of shape. I had some ups and downs and still having a hard time getting totally motivated. I don't know what the heck I'm doing um, in terms of exercise, which ones I should be doing and how to optimize my fitness and all that sort of stuff. So this is a really good episode. And it's summertime, you know, we all take a little bit better care of ourselves during the summer. Uh, so I, I felt this was a good time for this episode, and, and I learned a lot. And I think you will as well, especially if you're like me and you're not a big exercise person. Um, so uh, once again, um, Myco Meditations, speaking of wellness and improving ourselves, um, I, I've decided to sign up for uh, to do more of these retreats in Jamaica because it's just something that I absolutely believe in and it's something that uh, people don't have access to and should. And it's unfortunate that people have to go all the way to Jamaica to do psilocybin legally, Um, but that is the world that we live in for now. And, uh, and it's also, it's a, it's a fun, fantastic trip. You get to hang out with me, probably try to do a live podcast there. And uh, I, I just think it's a fantastic time. Three trips over, uh, it's a seven night stay and, uh, hanging out at the beach and exploring our minds and getting together and having group conversations about, um, kind of bettering ourselves and what we're learning from these experiences it's a fantastic time and so i hope you'll look into joining me december 15th through 22nd that one's going to fill up really fast because every single other retreat for this year has been sold out so we added this one as a special one and then um april uh, 6th through 13th 
is the next one that I have on the books. Come and see me. We're not going to call them Here We Are Retreats anymore, I don't think. Uh, just going to be Michael Meditations Retreats with me there as a facilitator and doing shows and entertaining everyone. So uh, check that out if you're interested. I think it's pretty reasonable for what you get out of it. And uh, it's just cool. It's a fun. It's way better than any other vacation I could think to go on, honestly. And that's why I'm doing it. So uh, check that out if you if you like. Again, thanks for all the ratings and reviews. Music this week by Sam Goodwill. Special thanks to Jimmy Fro with the Jimmy Fro Podcast for doing such a wonderful sound mixing job and editing job on this podcast and for introducing me to all sorts of cool indie music on his podcast, the Jimmy Fro Podcast. Those of you that listen all the way to the end. You are, of course, my favorite.